Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see all of you this morning. Uh, it's nice that the weather's broke and got some nice weather. That's always inviting. Uh, I want to piggyback on Abe's comments. I think we have uh, individuals who are affirming Covenant Community next week. Uh, in fact, it might be the next couple of weeks. I think we've got a child dedication on the 1st of May. So there's just a lot of really special things going on, and I hope that you have been able to be here, or at least watch online for things like our baptism and other things that we've done. It's just those are great elements in terms of what we're doing. Uh, and I believe at the end of the service, Todd's going to come up and lead us in hopefully this affirmation vote for Ross. So again, I want to encourage you as well to make sure you stay. Even if you're not a member here or Firm Covenant community, I th if, uh, it's kind of neat to see how God's grace works in the ebb of flow of even choosing staff. So before we jump into the text, uh, let me just invite you to bow with me and we'll bring ourselves before his throne of grace. You know, Father, we um, continue to run rapidly through life. And Father, we pray that this morning be, gives us a reason to pause and to stare into your presence, to see your glory in the face of Jesus, to reorient our hearts and our minds and our emotions uh, to the working of your grace and to the presence of your spirit in us. Father, we know that you have given us all that we need to rise above the circumstances of our own life and even the brokenness of our own hearts. And yet at times we still feel tremendous anxiety and worry. We struggle with the idea of our own propensity to do things that uh, sometimes are not in our own best interest. We ask that we would continue to learn what it means to surrender to your presence to place our lives at your disposal and allow your spirit to have full reign within the scope of our hearts and minds and our reasoning and our choices and our values. Father, we want our lives to be transformed. That's not just intended to be a cliche, to be nicer people, but it's meant that our hands are molded by the great potter, the, for, by your presence and, and the indwelling presence of your spirit, so that we become a reflection of the presence of Christ in a dark world. We ask that that would not just be lip service, but the true expression of our heart. And so, Father, as we continue to remind ourselves, as we dip our hearts and lives into your word, that your spirit would continue to be the teacher of our own heart and your truth. We entrust ourselves to you in that process this morning, and we give you thanks for all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the text that we're in is Romans chapter 16. We are looking at Paul's final words to the Romans, uh, even though this should be the end of the series. The people in our blocking time on the worship team doubt that this will be the end of being in Romans. They think I'll be back there next week. Uh, one of the things I will say as we begin to tip into this, obviously we have Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday that we're doing, but as I've prayed about it and really tried to uh, since uh, some of the discussions we've had as elders in terms of our revisioning, which has proved to be a challenge. I mean, we really want to discern the sense of how the Lord wants us to take steps in the future. Um, I've decided that I think one of the books that speaks directly to what I think our next steps are, need to be as a, a body of Christ is the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to step into that book in May and uh, we'll introduce it at the end of the month here, and we're gonna take a journey, literally just walking after Jesus and seeing how he touched people's lives. Mark is an exceptional book, and uh, I'm looking forward to our journey in it. Uh, it's only 16 chapters, twos. I won't tell you how long it'll take us to get through that. It, 
It will uh, probably, being that the, it's narrative literature rather than sort of systematic theology, it probably won't take four years, but uh, we won't get it through it. We won't get through it in 16 weeks, let's put it that way. So uh, I hope you'll prayerfully look forward to that as we dip into other parts of the scripture. Romans 16, verse 25, begins this way by saying, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has, kept, has been kept secret for long ages, but how, now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, one of the things that Paul is finishing off is literally reminding him of where he started in this book, and we'll take a look at that in a moment, but he is commending them to the God who is sufficient enough to help them live out this Christian life in a world that's very dysfunctional. Uh, I continually remind myself that I have to keep, make sure I don't keep making excuses why I'm not living a godly life. Not that I'm living an ungodly life, but often we get into a mode where we make excuses for certain parts of our life that we just can't seem to get our arms around or we can't seem to bring into the, to godliness and righteousness. And so we end up going, well, you know, everybody's not perfect, so we're just going to indulge the things in our life that we just can't seem to get our arms around. And the challenge of Paul is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient not only to save us, but to sanctify us exactly the way God wants us to live. That we, in one sense, we don't have any more excuses. We, we don't have reasons not to live godly, and yet we want to prevent ourselves from thinking that perfectionism is the reality we have to admit. We are certainly perfect as we stand before God because of the righteousness of Christ. And it's out of his acceptance and knowing that we have this eternal relationship with the God who created us that now we have the freedom to live and not worrying about getting ousted from the family of God if we don't do it perfect. And yet one of the great struggles of many Christians is that they are just terrified that God's going to oust them because they can't do it perfectly. So Paul reminds these individuals of the God who has not only saved them but can sanctify them. And I want to just remind you a little bit, as he reminds us of the gospel, what he started with in Romans 1. And this, like I said, may terrify you because we're going back to Romans 1. That doesn't sound very uh, comforting. But I want you to notice the language he uses there just as kind of a way that Paul is tying this together. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who has descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom he has received grace, uh, I've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of uh, his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So in a sense what he's doing is he's kind of bringing it all back to that same reality at the beginning and all through the book of Romans, we've, he's talked about the gospel and the righteousness of God and how mankind will never achieve it on its own efforts. 
In fact, he spent a lot of time talking to us, as we'll mention here, about humanity in this fallen state. And I've tried to encourage you to think about all of humanity may have great value because we're created in the image of God, but we are not good as far as God is concerned. We don't seek after him, we don't pursue, we don't have the righteousness, we can't earn his favor, we can't do enough to buy our way into heaven or a better place, that all of humanity falls under the wrath of God. And yet even in that state, God becomes the rescuer who sends his son to rescue those who will surrender their lives to him. So when Paul steps into these final words, he's going to focus a lot on the gospel. In fact, he says it in uh, sort of exclamation marks in terms of the first phrase that he talks about here, where he talks about now unto him, referring to God, who is able to establish or strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, I I don't want to spend too long on that. He sounds like he's talking about two different things when, in fact, I think he's simply talking about the same thing twice. It is not like when Paul says, my gospel, it's different than the gospel of Jesus in in the sense of that he's the centerpiece of it. In fact, it is probably better to read this according to my gospel, which is, in fact, the preaching of Jesus. Because there's no two gospels. Paul warns about that in Galatians. If someone comes to you preaching a different gospel, you need to ignore them. He has some really strong words for people who try to promote a different kind of gospel that wouldn't include the person of Jesus. And yet he says some things here that I think are helpful. I was reading a story this week about a pastor that was in Scotland who told the story of a man who went to the doctor with tremendous anxiety and worry because he went to him and he says, I think I'm dying. He says, everything hurts. He says, I I touch my arm and it hurts and I touch my ribs and they hurt and I touch my leg and it hurts, my knee hurts, everything, I think I'm gonna die. And so the doctor listens to him for a while, does a full examination of him and he says, I've got good news and bad news. And he says, what's that? The good news is you're not dying. The bad news is your finger's broken. Stop touching things. And one of the things that we have to be careful of is that the gospel is not for idiots who are trying to find a cute little way to be, get attention. We have to remember that literally it is the power of God to, for salvation that on things that are so much more significant than broken fingers. And yet we live in a world that will treat the gospel like some trivial little self-help thing for people who don't know how to manage life that they, we often get looked at as people who are stupid and idiots because we need this spiritual crutch to kind of get through life. And I want to remind you this morning that the gospel is the most powerful, most significant reality and message that God could communicate to a lost world. And we have to learn to ignore the ridicule of those who, do un- or who are naive and ignorant of the spiritual ramifications that lost humanity faces that this isn't about a self-help tool, this isn't about being nicer people, this is a life and death struggle for the souls of men and women in the world. And those who we're gonna see who do not surrender their lives to God through faith in Christ are doomed for a Christless eternity. And some of those people are your family members. And some of those people are your friends. And some of them are the people you work with. And some of the people are the people in your neighborhood and part of your sports and groups and some of your hobbies that you do. 
And if there's anything that Paul wants to do is he wants to elevate the reality of the gospel in such a way that in a sense we forget about us and we realize that God has us on mission to care for lost men and women. And so he is committed to keeping the gospel in front of them even at the end of his letter. And so it's appropriate for us to keep it in front of us. The first thing he does is identify the source of the, of the gospel and that is God himself, this salvation that he gives to us. And there's two ways to look at the gospel. One is the objective reality of how do I get right with God? How do I know that when I die, I'm actually gonna go to a better place that we call heaven or the scriptures call heaven? How do I know that I can be accepted by God in certain ways? And that's really what he started off in Romans 1 about, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power, the same word that's used here. It is the dunamis. It, it is the ability of God to save individuals from their sin and the, and the moral rebellion that we've had against God. And he can, he can cleanse and forgive us and give us a right standing before him and remove us from the wrath that he talked about in Romans 1.18, that the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. And so it can save us from that and remove us from wrath. It removes us from the guilt of sin. He forgives us and he gives us the right to become children of God, if I can borrow the language from John. That's critical. That's the objective reality of it. But when you look at Romans 1.17, it also says that, that those who have been made righteous need to live by faith. They need to live righteous lives. And so the gospel doesn't stop when, when we step into heaven and we go, oh, well, God's forgiven us. Now I can live life any way I want because I've got my little insurance policy to get to heaven. It is really abundantly clear from the scriptures as Paul writes this, that if you've received the gospel and been declared righteous by God, he calls us to live righteously. Not based on your idea or our culture's idea of righteousness, but based on his character and the revelation of his righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. That becomes the hallmark. And so as we begin to work through this, he, the, the, the language here is not only an objective idea that he can save us from sin, but there's a subjective element where the word strengthen or this sense of power uh, is about strengthening our inner person. So he's established us with Christ before him and we're declared righteous, but the gospel is also the means that strengthens our inner character and our resolve and our will and our emotions so that we can live out this Christian life, this righteousness and this godliness because God's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We're not victims, we're not helpless. We're, we're not trapped by our own devices. We're not limited by our circumstances or our upbringing. We have all the resources of heaven itself at our disposal so that we can choose to live a life that glorifies the God who saved us. And so Paul's reminding them of this particular element. And the reason why he says this is kind of a, a unique sort of irony in the scriptures. Because if you've never trusted Christ, your greatest adversary isn't another human being or a family member you've had a fight with or a worker that you've been at odds with, or someone who called, you your called themselves your friend and betrayed you, that's, those aren't, people aren't your worst enemy. Your worst enemy, if you are not in Christ, is God himself. 
He is the antagonist. He is the one that will inflict his wrath upon ungodliness and unrighteousness in this world, starting with those who have free will to choose. This sense of of being created in his image. And so the reason why we need the strength and the power of the gospel is because God's our greatest enemy if we don't know Jesus. And that becomes sobering because he's both the judge and the jury, as it were, but he's also the rescuer of broken human beings who will never be able to save themselves. And so it becomes painful to look at it. I've mentioned some of the passages. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5, he tells us we are weak and ungodly, that we are enemies of God because of our moral rebellion against him. And he has every right in the world to destroy us and inflict his judgment and wrath upon us because, in a sense, we've spit in his face and said, I can do life on my own. And so he becomes the great antagonist. But he's also the one who, in Romans 5, tells us that we have been justified by faith and we have peace with God to those who've believed in Jesus. He's also the one that tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Savior. That becomes the message that he wants to remind us of, and so it puts us in a, a fork in the road. You're either an individual who is in Christ and regardless of the struggle, I'm trying to live righteously and live by faith and and live a godly life and reflect the glory of the presence of God in the face of Jesus and live by the power of the Spirit of God and, and to try to shirk away the things of the flesh. Or I'm a person who's isolated from God and I have no hope of a better place or heaven apart because I'm choosing that I don't want to have anything to do with him now. I, I know that's, and at the end of life, you'll get your wish if you still hold that conviction. It's amazing how many people want nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Jesus, but are convinced they're going to go to a better place when they die. So the only better place that I see defined anywhere is heaven, and that's God's home, and he has every right to say, hey, if you're not willing to surrender to me, then you don't, don't get an invitation to dinner. It's not possible. And so the idea is that the severity of the gospel is also about not just salvation, but sanctification. And sometimes it's easy to get really sloppy on that part. It's really easy to kind of get indifferent to it. We think we're basically good, and as long as we don't make any grievous error that gets us in real trouble, we can sometimes pat ourselves on the back and go, I think I'm doing pretty good. I I don't know how any of us play too much on social media without having issues. (laughs) Because it's maybe a great tool, but it's also a complete cesspool at times. I mean, there's great tools to use for a lot of good things. But if, if you get hooked into something wrong, it can be the biggest dark hole you can drop into in life. But, that's it. but the problem isn't the stuff out there, it's the problem of the struggles of our own heart. It's when we give room for the devil, it's when we give opportunity for us to get hooked into things that we think are entertaining and make us feel good, but become landmines in our spiritual journey. And so at the heart of this, 
there's a certain severity to the gospel where he talks about that the gospel is about the preaching of Jesus. It's not about preaching a particular denomination. It's not preaching certain religious practices. It's not preaching moralism. It's not preaching about uh, just being a better person. It's about preaching of Jesus. And I want to remind you that any church, any religion that preaches a gospel, a good news, apart from Jesus, don't go there. Because we're going to see in this particular text that God is glorified in Jesus Christ, his son. He's not glorified by us trying to find another doorway into heaven. That's not going to work. And so I listen, if, if you're listening online or here and you happen to think that I, well, because I go to church, I, I must be in good favor with God. Most of you know, and you've probably been tired of it, is that attending a church or belonging to a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes me a mechanic. It's not the place that you go to, it's the person that you either know or don't know. The great statement that Jesus had in Matthew chapter 7, who people claimed to do great things for God and and did miracles and all kinds of other things, and Jesus says to them, I don't know you. And so the heart of the gospel is not religion or tradition or rules or regulations. At the heart of the gospel, and this is the, the, the severity of it, it's wrapped in a person. And 1 John 5, 11 and 12 make it pretty clear. This is the testimony, and I'll insert, of the gospel. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And so it's wrapped up, and it seems severe, but we can try to make salvation a lot of different things And at the heartbeat of it is Jesus himself. But it's more than just a label. It ought to change the way we live. There was a story I read by Mike Conklin. Came out of the Chicago Tribune. And uh, it starts this way. Many hotheads suffer from intermittent explosive disorder, IED. Sounds like something out of the military, but... He said, the good news is that there is a drug that can help control it. Dr. Emil Cossero, a research and professor of psychiatry at the University of Chicago Hospitals, who has studied anger for several decades and has championed a new drug called uh, Depocate or something, introduced by Abbott Laboratories in 1995. Uh, This drug, pardon me, the problem is an effort to find volunteers who will actually, they can test, do trials on. Because as he goes through this discussion, He says, few people see that they have an anger problem, so they don't volunteer. To illustrate the point, the doctor uh, talks about the day that he got into a friend's car, and when he got into the driver's side, he noticed that the the, uh, visor, the sun visor, was missing. And he said, like, kind of, what's the deal with this? Like, why is this missing? Just as casual conversation. And he goes, well, you better not get me started on that one. And he said, why, what's the problem? And he said, well, my wife ripped it off. He says, your wife ripped it off? That takes a lot of energy to rip one of those things off. He says, you should have seen how angry she was. And one of the things that we have to do is have a daily come to Jesus meeting, not about everybody else's stuff, but about our stuff. 
Because the issue is, is that we all want Jesus to change the people around us. That's the easy part. But at the heart of the gospel is God looks at us and he says, listen, the thing that's gonna glorify me is that I'm gonna change you from the brokenness that you are in and from your own selfishness and your own arrogance and I'm gonna change you in and transform you into the image of my son so that you become the best reflection of Jesus wherever you are living, whatever you're doing and whoever you're interacting with. One of the great condemnations in the Old Testament was that at some point Israel became so used to their traditions and habits and rituals and ceremonies that God's condemnation is, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And the greatest hypocrisy is when Christians give lip service to Jesus, but they don't want to do the hard work of surrendering and living as a servant of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and allowing their life to be shaped by the Spirit of God to reflect godliness and righteousness as God would define it rather than how they want it. And so his appeal to these individuals is that God can strengthen you. He can give you what you need. He can can adequately give you the resources to live in a way that glorifies God. And frankly, for our bet, keeps us from self-destructing and standing on landmines that will destroy our spiritual walk with Jesus when we start taking matters into our own hands. But some of us don't want to change. We think other people have the problem. But the power of the gospel is this sense of sanctification. It's the significance of it, it's personal transformation. Second Corinthians chapter three, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he says this, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some letters of recommendation to you? He goes on and says this, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Let me ask you something. Is God changing your heart? Is God transforming your heart so that it reflects even the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. See, the, the, the heart of Christianity isn't lip service to a title. It's a journey with a holy God who wants to change us. And sometimes one of the, the greatest fears is I don't want to get five years down the road and someone says, how's Brad different? And everyone goes, I don't know, he's kind of the same he's always been. That'd be wholly disappointing. Probably for others more than even me because we don't think I have to change that much. Don't think I need more humility and I don't think I need to surrender more. I think I've got that all figured out and it's easy to kind of justify our own journey. And yet at the heart of this is a God who's so much bigger than us that we will never understand holiness and the brilliance of his glory until we get to heaven. And I dare say that every person in scriptures, whether you're dealing with Isaiah or whether you're dealing with John or anyone else who came into the presence of God unveiling his glory before them and every one of them fell before God like a dead person because they were so overwhelmed by the majesty and the glory and the radiance of his holiness. And it's easy for us to lose touch of that in a really busy world where we think we've got it figured out.
When was the last time you fell before God? Maybe in tears, realizing the godliness and his holiness and how unworthy we often are of the reality of his grace. And so the power of the gospel is about changing us so that we look like Jesus. But I want you to notice the sufficiency of it. He literally starts by saying, now to him who is able to strengthen you, and then he puts in all this filler that we'll get to in a minute, but he finishes by saying, to bring about the obedience of faith. Now clearly there's two elements of this. One, in Romans 1, he talks about this obedience of faith to all the nations, to the world. He says the same thing here. But there's also a sense as he talks to these believers, he's saying, listen, I'm commending you to God about my gospel and the preaching of Jesus for all these reasons so that you will live obediently to God. And one of the things we have to keep reminding ourselves is that if we know Jesus as our personal Savior, the issue isn't doing what I feel like doing. The issue is obedience to God and his righteousness. The whole book of Romans is about the righteousness of Christ. Romans chapter 6 talks about being crucified from an old way of life, living by the flesh. Paul in Romans 7 talks about the struggle of the, the flesh and all the things that go with it. And while it's not perfection, every believer, I think, if, they, if they're listening to the Spirit of God and understand the, the viability of the gospel, wakes up every morning and surrenders and says, God, how do I need to live so that you become glorified? And so it becomes part of the reflection of what he said in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And probably one of the greatest indicators that we're uh, why we're not often living godly and righteous lives is because we're not living by faith. I mean, it's the first thing. I can't not live a righteous and godly life if I'm living by faith, but if I abandon the idea of my confidence and ongoing trust of who God is, then what I do is start making my own decisions. I start charting my own pathway. There's a, a, a thing that I've dealt with with people, and it's, Kind of one of those things is, and I'm interacting with some people on this um, whole idea of what's God's will. And I always think it's intriguing when someone goes, well, here's what I want to do. And, you know, I've kind of prayed about it. And I think I can do it. And the question usually comes by, well, how do you sense God leading? And he says, well, God hasn't stopped me. And there's something inherently problematic with that because what it just, it assumes is that I'm making decisions if God doesn't want me to do it, which means I probably haven't talked to him in the first place, he has to stop me from doing it if he really doesn't want me to do it. And my question is always, why are you making a decision to do that if you don't know that God wants you to do that in the first place? And usually it comes down to, well, I didn't know that's how it worked. I thought I got to do my own thing, and, you know, God, if he doesn't want me to do it, he'll stop me. 
I've never seen that work very well. One out of personal experience, and one out of just the struggles that I've seen other people go through. The idea is not that I live my life and hopefully God keeps up and sanctions everything I'm doing, but God leads and I follow. The only way to live by faith is to allow the Spirit of God to, to be in front, guiding. And I, as Galatians says, I learn to keep in step with him. But as he finishes this off, let me just remind you that we're not following myths and kind of human speculations and mythologies and philosophies. Because you'll notice in this text that he says very deliberately, now and him is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to this whole long history lesson. According, he says, to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all nations. And so he says four things in this that we won't go into a lot of depth, but I want to at least bring to your attention. He says it's the mystery of God. The mystery is, is that once God sent his son, he opened up the door for Gentiles, people that were non-Jews, to actually enter into this salvation. Because other than that, we would not be entitled to it. And it's a mystery because God didn't disclose it. He did not give full revelation of it. He spoke about it. You can see it seated within the Old Testament scriptures, and it's most likely he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures in this, but it's, it's a mystery that God created in the, in the eternal planning of the Godhead, and it is his purpose, it is his will, it is his plan. Christianity is not an American religion that we're imposing on everybody else. I mean, I don't even know how you come up with that, but I have heard it before. Greg Kukul in his uh, video on tactics was dealing with the problem that an atheist had accused him one time to saying, listen, if you were born in the Middle East, you wouldn't be a Christian. And, and uh, Greg turned around and said, well, if you were, grew up in the Middle East, you wouldn't be an atheist. And the, and the resulting question is, like, so what, who cares? It has nothing to do with the viability of the gospel because it's not man-made. It has nothing to do with which culture, which ethnic group created it. This comes as a mystery that came from the heart and the mind of God. So we're, as Paul says in letters, we're not chasing foolish speculations and ideas and myths and philosophies from this ethnic group or this particular group or this denomination. This is the revelation of God. And that's really the second statement. The method is he's revealed it through his prophets. Now, someone might say, well, there you go. There's people who have made this up because he's used individuals. Well, remember, people will think that way, but we are reminded by the scriptures in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be completely equipped for every good work. 1 Corinthians 2, for who knows a person's thought except the spirit of the person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God, and we impart this in words not by, taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit of God, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
Second Peter chapter one reminds us that no, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The fact that he mentions that the method here is through the prophetic writings is saying God's had his fingerprints on this from the very beginning. And so take heart. You're not just chasing your own foolish ideas and trying to create your own religion. You're not concocting something just based on tradition and this is what I grew up with. This is the country I lived in so this is simply what I'm saddled with. This is the revelation from the heart and mind of God to a broken humanity who can never save themselves and out of his great mercy and grace, mercy and grace, even though he is the God that will inflict wrath upon ungodliness, he is also the savior who rescues us from it. And so it's, he says, this is the mystery, this is the method through the scriptures and the messengers that we've already talked about. His apostles and his prophets, selected individuals whom God used. We'd probably do a whole series on the inspiration of the scriptures, but we won't go there this morning. And the motivation, you'll notice, is this is a message for the whole world. Literally, the word used here is ethnos. It's our word for ethnic. This isn't a message just for a certain group of people. This is a message for the whole world. It crosses cultural lines and ethnic lines and all kinds of different cultures. This is the message for the, uh, an entire world. And we're on the, God has given us the, the privilege to be on the cutting edge of a message that the world desperately needs. The question is, do we believe that? Are we living that way? Sometimes we become so entangled in our own stuff that it's literally like, do we really believe that this is the right message for a lost world? Or are we so distracted or preoccupied with our own stuff that it looks like we don't care? And then you'll notice that he finishes by saying very simply, this is to bring about the obedience of faith. We need to remind ourselves that when we present the gospel, and I've heard people reverse psychology this, that when people won't believe the gospel, they're disobeying God because this is God's message to a lost world. This is what you have to do if you want to be right with me. You can't manufacture it on your own. You can't barter with me. You can't be good enough on your own. You can't produce your own righteousness. My righteousness is in my son, and if you don't surrender and embrace him, you will never be right with me. And so Paul is probably reflecting a little bit on his own ministry when he says this has been communicated to the whole world because he's been ferociously moving from one city to the next, communicating with urgency the reality of the gospel that some would believe. He's the one who said, I become all things to all men that they might come to see Christ. Do you have anybody in your life you're intentionally trying to communicate the hope of the gospel? Or are you just hoping that it'll all happen by accident? I don't know anybody that values anything and, and hobbies and sports and music and all kinds of things. We don't just sort of happen to think that we're gonna sit down and if I went over to try to play the piano, it'd be a disaster. 
And yet sometimes we treat the gospel that way. We just kind of figure that if it's gonna happen, God's gotta do all the work and it's gonna be an accident with my life if it's anything. And yet Paul's the perfect example of saying, listen, I'm gonna be intentional about this. And I wanna encourage you to say that it's not good enough that the people in the office just know that you're a Christian. We have to care deeper than that. Nobody cares whether you go to church. They want to see the life that trusting Jesus makes a difference. And so at the heart of this, he's in a sense almost pleading with them. Because the danger in most Christian lives and I see it myself and I, we struggle with it together, is that we become consumers. We love the gospel for what it does for us. We're just not sure that it's sellable. And at the heart of this, Paul basically says that the purpose of the gospel is to glorify God. It's not to glorify us. It's not about making us successful in life. It's not just a self-improvement program. It's all for the glory of God. And yet, most of the reasons why I wouldn't share the gospel is because I'm worried about my image or my success or how people view me or whether I'm living with above reproach so I don't offend somebody. Now, I'm not advocating going around offending people. But the, but the problem is, is that we often don't live for the glory of God, we live it for the preservation of my image. And we like the gospel for its, its benefits, but we struggle at times with living to the full glory of God. Warren Worsby and his brother made this list some time ago about the whole nature of he, taught, he was calling it ministry. To me, it's life. The foundation of ministry is character. The nature of ministry is service. The motive for ministry is love. The measure of ministry is sacrifice. The authority of ministry is submission. The purpose of ministry is the glory of God, not the success of a program. The tools of ministry are the word of God and prayer. The privilege of ministry is growth. The power of ministry is the Holy Spirit. The model for ministry is Jesus Christ himself. It's not how successful we run our programs. We want to do those well. But we're failing you if, if our goal isn't that we empower you to live in such intimacy with God that you're living to the glory of God. Because the nature of the gospel, as Paul says, is, is about the only wise God that exists. The gospel is foolishness to the world but it's the wisdom of God. There was a story that Timothy George told. He was individual who was in preaching today and a pastor, and he said this. 
When I was a student at Harvard Divinity School, I learned preaching from Gardner Taylor, a pastor from New York City. I'll never forget those lectures that he gave us. And I remember him telling a story when he was preaching in Louisiana during the Depression. Electricity was just coming out in that part of the country. And he was in a very backwoods sort of rural environment in a black church, he describes it. It had one little light bulb in, in the meeting room that they were in. It was the only light that they had, and he was, it was in the evening time when they were preaching, so it was necessary. In the middle of the sermon, all of a sudden the electricity went out and it went completely black, and so he was kind of fumbling around, and it was really dark. Apparently, I'm not sure, it sounded like it didn't have any windows, so there was no light coming in. So he fumbled around for a second and wasn't quite sure what to do, and he was struggling, and then there was an old deacon sitting at the back of the church, and in the midst of all this blackness, he cried out, keep on preaching, pastor, we can see Jesus even in the dark. You know, there's times you might feel like you're stumbling around in this life because you haven't got it all put together, but I want to tell you, God has the ability to help people see Jesus even in the dark. And we live in a dark world. And I want to commend you to him, the one who can strengthen you to do what you at times think is impossible in terms of what it means to live out the Christian life. To surrender to him in such a way that we're not just getting by or surviving the week or avoiding problems, but that we're living to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And when the world looks at your life, when he looks at us, I don't want them to see whether we give them all the right programs. I want them to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Are you doing that at work? Are you doing that in your neighbors? Are you doing it on your sports teams and your hobbies? Because I think what Paul says is whatever it takes, whatever surrender, whatever sacrifice, whatever service, whatever we do, it's worth it because it's to the glory of God. That's what he calls us to. That's what we have to keep becoming. For his glory, because of Christ, that's the way we need to live. Father, we ask that we would have a renewed sense of the power of the gospel. That we would understand that this is your message to a lost world, not a concoction we're making up to sell to the world. And Father, no matter how the struggle or whether we stumble around in it, we understand that we have a perfect standing before you because of Christ. But we want to know the strength of the gospel in our life on a daily basis so that we live life to the glory of you. And we know that you didn't save us just to abandon us and leave us on our own. You've given us the Holy Scriptures. You've given us the Spirit of God. We have everything we need for life and godliness, and I pray that the challenge your Spirit puts on our heart is that we live to the glory of God. And maybe it starts this morning where we resolve in our heart 
that God, whatever it takes and wherever you lead us, wherever we go, whatever the sacrifice, whatever we have to surrender, we want to live for your glory. So in the brokenness and sometimes the arrogance and the, and the control issues that we have help us to kneel before your throne of grace and know what it means to find this great freedom to live according to your righteousness for your glory. And for this we pray in Christ's name.